If you would um, actually. stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This morning I'll be reading from Micah 7, verses 18 through 20. Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. Brothers and sisters, hear the very Word of God. Who is like a God unto thee? Let me try it again. Who is a God like unto thee, that pardoneth iniquity, and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities, and thou will cast all their sin into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob. And the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do ask today that your spirit would be active among us. That you would bless the reading and the preaching and the hearing of your word. And through the comfort of your spirit, that you would lead us into all truths. And that you would use your word to conform us more and more into the image of your son. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. The last three sermons that I have preached have focused on this word that is in this passage translated as mercy. And as I've mentioned in the past, this word is hesed, right? But we've been looking at our response to God's hesed, to his, his mercy. And we've been talking a lot about praising and singing and shouting, and that this form of worship in response to Hesed is actually warfare. Does everybody remember those sermons? We talked a lot about singing, and then Pastor Clark had us do a tremendous amount of singing in a couple of those occasions. Uh, For those of you who weren't here, I think we sang 40 songs after one of the (laughs) sermons. Not quite 40, but it was 13, if I remember right. After 40 minutes. 40 minutes, that's right. And, and that was great, and it was glorious, but um, I don't think today, um, he, he will probably go there, though. You're free to if you want. All right, so today, we're still going to look at this concept of hesed, this idea of God's mercy towards us as his people. But we're going to look at it from a little different angle. We're going, to, we're going to drill down and take a closer look of, at what this mercy from the Lord is. And how his faithfulness, this hesed, how it impacts us 
as the family of God, how it affects us and impacts us as his covenant people. So it's a little odd that I've pulled a passage from the end of a book. And the book of Micah is, is a shorter book, but it, it is basically a prophecy towards, or a, a prophet speaking to the southern kingdom. All right? And during this time, the southern kingdom has its share of problems. It has a sin problem, right? This is a big surprise. But what is going on in their culture What is going on in their covenant community is very similar to our own day. Their their culture is um, overrun with idolatry and sorcery. It is shot through with deceit and fraudulent dealings. But Micah heaps this special condemnation on those who are oppressing the poor by seizing lands that God intended to be an inheritance to his people. He is particularly hard on those who are taking God's promise to these people and removing it from them. In addition to these problems, um, the leaders in their community, both political and spiritual, are condemned for their oppression of the people and their disregard for justice and truth. As I said, it sounds a lot like our day, doesn't it? So when we look at this passage, this this is classic, this is a classic use of the word We find a culture that is being overrun by their sin problem. And yet the prophet comes to them and and he preaches a hard message. And he tells them to turn from their sin. But at the end of the book, at the end of this prophecy, he comes to them and he gives them this prophecy. He gives them this prophecy promise. If you look at it, he says, who is a God like unto thee? Which is really interesting because that's actually what the name Micah means. Micah means who is like Jehovah. Who is a God like unto thee that pardons iniquity and passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. The prophet says, He retains not his anger forever because he delights in mercy. This morning in in the uh, instruction hour, we were talking about God's wrath, right? And in Habakkuk, it says, God in your wrath, remember Mercy. Just a few quick notes here where it says that God pardons iniquity. Um, This word pardon means to bear or to carry. 
This is the idea that we know of substitutionary atonement, right? This is, this is somebody else taking our sin to themselves so that we no longer bear it. And in return, we get what? We get the one who bears the sins. We get his righteousness. Of course, we're talking about Jesus here, right? That great exchange, which we've mentioned before, right? That Jesus takes our sins and he gives us his righteousness. This is how we can be righteous before a holy God. Because we stand clothed in Jesus' righteousness. Somebody say amen. Amen. Thank you. But when we come to this word mercy, here in this passage, we want to think that um, this is talking about God's steadfast love. Steadfast. It means he will not be moved in his love towards us. It refers to God's utter commitment to the covenant relationship that he sovereignly instituted and that persists despite the waywardness of his covenant partners. The Lord delights to display his resolute and effective commitment to securing pardon and acceptance for them, for you, no matter the cost or difficulty involved. He will thus ensure that the relationship disrupted by our sins will be consummated. This relationship will be consummated in accordance with his purpose. Isn't that amazing? When we think about mercy, we tend to think that it's just somebody who is not dealing with the penalty that needs to be paid, right? But that's not the case at all. That would disrupt God's justice, right? So it's something else. What does it mean to be merciful? It's not just winking at sin. It's not just ignoring sin. So as one who grew up in the government schools, and I think I've mentioned this before, um, I have a hard time remembering what words actually mean. And in our day and age, the definitions kind of shift around on us, right? What is, means one thing one day means something else today, and I frankly can't keep, keep up. So I go back to my favorite dictionary, the Noah Webster's 1828 Dictionary. If you don't have one, get one. And for merciful, it says this. Having or exercising mercy, compassionate, tender, disposed to pity offenders and to forgive their offenses, unwilling to punish for injuries, applied appropriately to the supreme being. And Noah Webster here means God of the Bible. That's why I love this dictionary. 
And then for the example of merciful, because he always uses it in context, right? He recommends Exodus 34, which says this, reading from 4 to 9. Remember, this is merciful. So he cut two tables of stones like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tables of stone. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. It's one of those lines we usually just pass right by, isn't it? Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, with Moses, there. And proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness, that's our Hesed, and truth, which also shows up in our passage. Abounding in goodness and truth. Keeping mercy, there's Hesed again, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. As we have been talking previously, this is really the only appropriate response to Hesed, is to fall on your face and worship. Then Moses said, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. Take us as your inheritance. And this word also shows up in our passage. So then we move to verse 19 in Micah chapter 7. And he says, He will turn again. He will have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. This is interesting because earlier in Micah, just a few verses up, it talks about the Israelites coming out of Egypt. And when he talks about casting their sins into the depths of the sea, we have to be thinking about the, the Egyptian army, right, that was, that was coming for Israel. They were going to destroy them. But God in his, what? In his mercy, he delivers them from the oppressors, right? And all of the army of the Egyptians does what? Drowns, disappears. Totally gone. Totally removed from the scene. You might say as far as the east is from the west. Then in verse 20 in Micah chapter 7, we read this. 
Thou will perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. And this is when we really are going to start zeroing in and focusing in on what this idea of Hesed is really all about. You ready? Thank you. It's all right. You guys can talk back. So it says here that the Lord will perform the truth to Jacob. What does that mean? What does this word truth here mean? Well, interestingly enough, it means faithfulness. And who is Jacob? Who is Jacob? You guys know this. What? He's Israel, but who? son of who? Isaac. Isaac, son of? Abraham. Okay? So the Lord, right, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is going to be faithful towards Jacob. Right? So what does that mean? What does it mean for God to be faithful towards Jacob? Well, the passage then says, and the mercy to Abraham. So whatever this faithfulness is to Jacob is connected to this faithfulness over here to Abraham. Are you following me? So this idea of mercy is a a loyal love. It's God's kindness and his goodness. But it's, it's, it's always used in this context of God's love to his covenant people. His faithfulness to his own inheritance. One of the Hebrew dictionaries has this great line in it. It says that hesed is an obligation to the community. And the community is defined as relatives, friends, guests, masters, and servants. Hesed is the obligation to the community. Get this. Initiated by ceremony. We know what this is like, right? We know what this loyal love is right. Who here has been to a wedding? All right? So this is kind of what we're talking about, right? This is that covenant marriage that it's initiated. It's this faithful love initiated by ceremony. Okay? Because it's really interesting. If that wedding is at noon, right? At 11.59, you have two people who love each other and are fully committed to each other, right? But they're not married. That covenant hasn't happened yet. The ceremony starts at noon, and depending on who's running the service, somewhere within that next hour, vows are going to be exchanged, promises are going to be made, And think of it's kind of like going through a car wash, right? They come out the other end, and because of a ceremony, they're different. 
There's no real inherent power in the ceremony, right? It is this vows. It is the proclamation of this love. It is promises made in front of witnesses. 1159, they're not married. One o'clock, they're different. The two have become one. Are you following me? Obligation to community initiated by ceremony. Another one of the dictionaries said a love or affection that is steadfast, right, doesn't move, based on a prior relationship. So this faithfulness that God exercises towards Jacob is based on a prior relationship with Abraham. Does that make sense? God's faithfulness is working through these families, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Psalm 105 gives us this, and we're going to get into the singing aspect just a little bit. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. Sing unto him, sing psalms to him, talk ye of all his wondrous works, glory ye in his holy name. Let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord, seek the Lord and his strength, seek his face evermore, remember his marvelous works that he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth, or the proclamations. O ye seed of Abraham, his servant, ye children of Jacob, his chosen, he is the Lord of God. He is the Lord, our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He, the Lord our God, has remembered his covenant forever. He has remembered his covenant forever. The word which he commanded to a thousand generations. Which covenant he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. And confirmed the same unto Jacob for a law. And to Israel for an everlasting covenant. So I'm going to be full of questions today. How long is an everlasting covenant? How long does it last? Forever. Forever. He has remembered his covenant forever. This is not just an Old Testament concept either. We see this brought forward into the New Testament, especially around the promise of Jesus coming, right? And Jesus, as the one who came out of Egypt successfully, is known as the true Israel. All right? And it all ties back into this Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Jacob being considered broadly Israel. 
In Luke 1, verses 54 and 55, we read this. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his, what? His mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. And then just a few verses down in Luke chapter 1, it says this. Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He has spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, remember the Egyptian army, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, which lasts how long? Forever. The oath which He swore to our father Abraham, To grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Now may the God of peace himself Sanctify you completely. 1 Thessalonians 5, right? And may your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. And then it says, who also will do it. What is the it there, right? That he will sanctify us completely, right? And that he'll preserve us blameless to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. God carries us to the end and plants us. That is amazing. And these are the promises that he made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. You can go back and and read those. Genesis chapter 12 for Abraham. Uh, Genesis 26 for Isaac. Genesis 28 for Jacob. I'd go back and read those, but we'll be here all day, which is okay with me, but pot roast or something, right? All right. So what does this mean? This call to us, as God's covenant people, the call is for us to walk in faith, right? By faith, through faith. God's call to us is to be faithful. It's pretty simple, right? Think of Ephesians 1. Think of Ephesians 2. Should I read those? It's worth it, I think. 
And I want you to pay particular attention as I read through this. I can find it. After Galatians, right? Desperately trying not to lick my fingers. That's my problem here. All right. So please pay attention to the action words and who is performing the actions. Ah. Chapter 1, I'll pick up at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood for forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might might gather together in one all things in Christ." both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. In him we have also obtained, we have obtained an inheritance in him, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Are you following all that? We're pretty passive there, aren't we? Then in chapter 2, it starts out, and you... He made alive. Praise the Lord. And you, us, he made alive. Because how how were we at that point, right? We were dead in trespasses in sin, in in which we once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we were all once we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh 
fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. Notice all the family language here. So we were dead in our sins and in our trespasses. Dead. And then verse 4. But God, who is what? Rich in mercy. Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here it comes, the big breathless sentence. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God is busy. God is powerful. And according to the good pleasure of his will, he loves us and was faithful to us and extended his mercy to us like he promised to our forefathers. This passage that we're looking at in Micah is really no different. Listen to this. I summarized it for you. God pardons. God passes by our transgression. God retains not his anger. God delights in mercy. God turns towards us. He has compassion. He subdues our iniquities. He casts them into the sea. He performs mercy and truth. All of this is according to the promise he made to Abraham. He is faithful. In the midst of a culture that is running in the opposite direction, and and brothers and sisters, in our day, this is the world and the church. They're running in the opposite direction of God and His Word. And yet God tells us that He is faithful. He is faithful. And we are called, as we've talked about the previous weeks, we are called to respond to His faithfulness in praise. Remember? In rejoicing, in loud celebration, hooping and hollering and dancing in the aisles. I know I'm going to get thrown out of the Presbyterian church, right? We are to respond in thanksgiving. We are to respond in in sacrifice, in faith, in trust, 
in our own little version of steadfast love. But this is the part that we miss. Our children are supposed to respond in the same way. They are recipients of this promise like we are. They are included in these proclamations, in these declarations of covenantal love. It includes our offspring, Abraham. Isaac, and Jacob. The mercy expressed to Abraham realized in Jacob. This is what it means to be covenantal. Right? We are part of the covenant Presbyterian church. I couldn't remember our name. The first word is there for a reason. We are Reformed Presbyterians, right? We submit ourselves to the Westminster Confession, which is systematic theology for covenant theology. This is in our DNA. This is who we are. And we forget it. Abraham was called to walk by faith. And so are we. Abraham was called to teach his children. No, actually it says he's com- that he is to command his children. God said he knew that he would command his children to walk in faith. That Abraham would command his children to walk by faith. That Abraham would command his children to walk through faith. Genesis 18 says this, And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham this thing that I do? No, he tells him, right? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation. And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Do we believe that? Do we believe that all the nations in time and history are going to be blessed because of Abraham's descendants? God continues here. He says, for I know him that he will command his children and his household after him. Remember the description of community earlier? All the people who were involved? For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him. And they shall keep the way of the Lord. To do justice and judgment. That the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which the Lord had spoken. Wow. See, there was a promise to Abraham and to his children. I will be a God to you and to your children. How many times is that said in the Old Testament? I didn't look it up, but it's a lot. I will be a God to you and to your children, to you and to your children, to you and your children. Abraham has been presented to us as this model of justification by faith alone. And that's good and right. There are many passages that teach this. We are told that we should be like Abraham. 
We are told that we should believe like Abraham. And we should. Galatians chapter 3 says this. Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. This is from Genesis 15, verse 6. We'll get to that in a little bit. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham. Wow. So the gospel was preached to Abraham, right? That's what it says. It even tells us what that gospel was in this particular instance. Saying... In thee, all nations, in thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Abraham believed the gospel. Romans 4 says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And it goes on to say that this this was even before circumcision, right? How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or uncircumcision? Was it the ceremony that did it? No. Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of of the righteousness of the faith which he had when he was uncircumcised. That he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised. That righteousness would be imputed to them. Faith, Abraham believing the Lord's righteousness was imputed to him. Right? Justification by faith. James chapter 2 says Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. This is all really good. And it's right. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. We are called to believe like Abraham. We are called to have faith like Abraham. I've heard this for years in our circles, but one of the things that I've not heard, and if we we would just take a second and step back, and maybe instead of looking at it this way all the time, if we would just adjust a little bit and ask the question a little differently. Instead of focusing on believing like Abraham, maybe we should consider believing what Abraham believed. Uh oh. What did Abraham believe?
It's a good question. Thank you for asking it, Elder Evans. If you would, turn with me to Genesis 15. Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me? Seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Then Abraham said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in mine own house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now towards heaven, and count the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So what did Abraham believe? He believed he would have a child, right? He would have an heir. But it's not just one. Do you see this? It says, look now towards heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. So shall your descendants be. See, Abraham is, is he's got a moment here. He's talking to God, right? And he says, I don't have an offspring. I need, I need an offspring. And God says, no, 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 that won't do. That won't do. Your offspring are going to number like the stars in heaven. Does anybody know how many stars there are? We don't. We keep counting them, right? And, and they just, the farther we can see, the more stars there are, right? So it's an unimaginable number. He even says that. Go count the stars if you're able. Right? And we know we're not. That's amazing. So Abraham believed that God would give him more children than there were stars in the sky. At a point in time, Abraham had no children. And if you remember the story, they're old. Right? And they're past childbearing years. This is impossible. Right? For man. But what else did he believe? Let's, let's flip over, it's real close here, chapter 17. And we pick up where it says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. Walk in faith. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, 
There's that worship posture again. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations, plural, for an everlasting covenant. How long does an everlasting covenant last? Good. We'll learn that today, if nothing else, right? So, an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. We pick up at verse 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. And this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generation. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants, remember the definition of community earlier. It included servants and all that, right? He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. It's kind of heavy there at the end. But what did Abraham believe? Back to that, right? In this passage, God calls Abraham to walk by faith, to walk in faith, and to walk through faith. God says that he will make a covenant with Abraham. And that he will exceedingly multiply his descendants. That he will be the father of many nations, kings and nations would flow from him. God says he will make an everlasting covenant with Abraham and with his children. With Abraham and his children. He says it multiple times. With Abraham and his children. There's an old theologian who says it like this. Talking about this passage in Micah. He says, Thou hast then sworn to our fathers... From the days of old. The faithful take for granted that God has promised to the fathers that his covenant would be perpetual. For he did not only say to Abraham, I will be your God, but he also added, and to your seed forever. Since then, the faithful knew that the covenant of God would be perpetual and unbreakable. They also knew that it was to be continued from fathers to their children. And that it was once 
uh, promulgated for this end, that the fathers might deliver it as by the hand to their children. They therefore doubted not, but that it would be perpetual. How so? For thou hast sworn to our fathers. That is, they knew that God not only promised, but that having interposed an oath by which God designed to confirm that covenant, he greatly honored it. That it might be unhesitatingly received by the chosen people. As then the faithful knew that God, in a manner, bound himself to them. That God bound himself to the people. And in this, they confidently, fide, by faith, right? They confidently solicited him. Really to show himself to be who he declared himself to be to his own elect. See, God lays out this covenant before Abraham. And he says, I am going to be a God to you and to your children. Then the Lord lays out Abraham's part of the covenant. He says, you're going to walk by faith. Next chapter he says, I know that you're going to command your children... But what does walking faithfully in this covenant look like for Abraham and their children? What do Abraham and his children have to do? What does it look like for the faithful Abrahamic nations to keep covenant with the Lord? Any guesses? What does it say in the passage? Circumcise the child, right? Apply the sign of the covenant. The sign of righteousness is applied in faith, by faith, to the children. The parents believing God's promises for themselves and for the children. That God would be faithful to them and their children. That God would forgive their sins. That he would pass over their iniquities. That he would throw them into the sea. That he would rescue them from their enemies. A sign and a seal that these children are part of God's family. Hey, this is what the confession says. Chapter 28 on baptism says, Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament. Ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, to be part of that community, but also to be unto him a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace, of his engrafting into Christ, a sign and a seal of regeneration, a sign and seal of the remission of sin, a sign and seal of his giving up uh, unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life, which sacrament by Christ's own appointment to be continued in his church until the end of the world. Whoa, 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 whoa. You just jump from circumcision to baptism really quick. 
How does that happen? Is that even fair? Is that legitimate? I believe it is, right? So remember, in Ephesians 1 and in Ephesians 2, right, it's all about what God is doing to us, for us, with us, in some cases in spite of us. So in Colossians chapter 2, it says this. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy or empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of this world, and not according to Christ. So we we need to be sure that we're lining up with Christ, with the Word of God, right? For in Him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in Him, who is the head of all principalities, and power. And it says, in him you were also circumcised. Colossians 2, it's right here. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. You were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism. By the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, In the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses. It says that he has taken those and that he has... Nailed them to the cross. This circumcision of Christ, this baptism, is a sign and a seal that your sins have been taken from you. And with Jesus, they've been nailed to the cross. This is the promise to you and your children. Oh, I'm running long. All right, so write this down in your, in your notebook, okay? I want you to read Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Uses the word hesed there, all right? 
And then I want you to go over to Acts chapter 2 and read 12 through 41. This is the day of Pentecost where Peter's preaching and he eventually says, and this is the promise to you and your children. Okay? But he quotes Joel chapter 2, 25 through 32. So go home and read those. It's a very interesting read. It's talking about the restoration of Israel in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. The promise to you and your children. And try to to wrap this up. As homeschoolers, we we go to this verse a lot, right? Back over here in Ephesians chapter 6. We love this one. Children... Obey your parents. Right? We even sometimes use it as a stick. Children, obey your parents. Right? But then it says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. You see, Paul is understanding that these children are in the Lord. Children. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your mother and your father, which is the first commandment with promise. There's that idea of promise again, right? That it may be well with you, that you may live long on the earth. And we usually don't read the next part. Your dads know this one. And you fathers... Provoke not your children to wrath. But bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. This passage really works well together. You have children who are being told that in the Lord they are to obey their parents and they are to honor their parents. And then it's telling the fathers not to Um, provoke their children to wrath. And as we talked earlier today, wrath is God's judgment raining down on you, right? Molten lead, I think you said, in the eye. It's a great little image. Who's that wrath for? The wicked, right? But this passage is saying, no, 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 no. We're we're not raising our children like that. No, see, these, these children are in the Lord. We are to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We are to teach them by our example to walk faithfully in the covenant. This nurture and admonition, this nurture is kind of the walk, right? Deeds, acts of discipline. I like to think of it as how you would train a vine to grow on a trellis. That's what nurture means. Right? And that's what we do with plants. We, we train them, you trim off stuff that's not looking good. Right? A little discipline. And then the admonition is the talk. Right? This is walking and talking. This is words of encouragement. This is hopefully God's word raining down um, from you to your children, uh, influencing every bit of their life. And, and we as homeschoolers, we know this passage too, right? We couple Ephesians chapter 6 with Deuteronomy chapter 6. Do we not? Anyone? Yes. Now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments that the Lord your God commanded you to teach. Like Abraham. 
that you might do them in the land where you go to possess it, that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee, thou and thy son and thy son's son, all the days of thy life, that thy days may be prolonged. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with you, that you may increase mightily as the Lord God of thy fathers have promised in the land that flows with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words, which I command thee this day, shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. And thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in the house. And when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thy eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and on thy gates. So what is happening here is we are being called to walk and to talk the things of the Lord with our children. Or even those who are young in the faith, right? We are to, as the psalm that I read earlier, we are to declare to them God's mighty acts, his wondrous acts. What are those? What are those wondrous acts? It's God moving on our behalf, right? Passing over our iniquity, casting our sins into the sea, delivering us from evil, delivering us from our enemies, being faithful to his promises to us. So here's what we need to do, right? We need to believe God. Amen? Amen. Like Abraham. We need to believe God like Abraham. We need to repent, if needed, and return to the truth of the Lord. We need to encourage and nurture And build up our children in the faith. Walk and talk with them. Raising them in faith. Raising them by faith. Raising them through faith. If you want to talk about Jacob and Esau, we can do that at lunch maybe. But as Pastor Clark said to me this morning... We're not in Esau. We're in Jacob. The true Israel has come, and we're in him. We are to uh, believe God's word, like Abraham did. We are to praise him for adopting us, for adopting us and our children into his family. We are to thank him for the forgiveness of sins through his son, Jesus Christ. Amen? 
we are to believe God. I have it written down again. It's three times. Lastly, I have we are to praise him for his great loving kindness. We are to praise him for his great mercy. Praise to him for his covenantal faithfulness. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are a a good God. Your word declares to us that you are a good Father. Our experience in the Lord declares to us that you are a good Father. And as a good Father, you desire to give us good gifts. And in your word, you tell us that if we pray and if we ask, that you will hear us, that you will answer our prayers, and that you will truly give us good gifts. Father, we are thankful for the good gift of your word this morning. We are thankful for the truths that are in it. We are thankful for the comfort that we derive from it. We are thankful for the encouragement. We are thankful for the challenges where we see we have gone astray or we have missed your will. Father, we pray that you will continue to be pleased to grant us the gift of repentance that we can confess our sins and our faults to you. And we are eternally thankful that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And not only to forgive us of our sins, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that we stand before you clothed in his righteousness. Hallelujah. Father, you are a good God. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name.